Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the podcast Topical Reflections on Music. Today I have the pleasure and honor of welcoming a very, very special guest, Dr. Dennis Bathory-Kitts, a US composer, author, editor, teacher and technologist. He's engaged in the advancement of arts and technology from both a humanist and experimental perspective and composes, writes and advocates for what he calls non-pop music. He has created more than a thousand works for a very wide variety of media, including orchestras, sound sculptures, soloists, chamber groups, electronics, theater, opera, installations, dancers, interactive media and performance events, as well as writing about music and multimedia arts. Uh, Dr. Bathory Kitz's music uh, has been performed worldwide and includes uniquely designed electronic and acoustic instruments, computer software and hardware, synthesizers and e-boxes, electronic costumes, the Rhythmatron and extended voice performances. From 1995 to 2010, he co-hosted Calvos and Damien's New Music Bazaar, uh, that is winner of the ASCAP Deems Taylor Award for Internet Journalism. He has also won national recognition at the Lincoln Center with his radio show. Bathory Kids is a polymath, and his book topics include theater, computer technology, hiking, and the country stores of Vermont, a history and guide. He restores old family and professional audio recordings and loves gardening and travel. His website is multidmedia.com slash people slash Bathory. And uh, I will also include a link in the description of this episode. Alors, bonjour, cher ami Denis, j'espère que vous allez bien. Uh, merci beaucoup d'être avec nous aujourd'hui. Thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, J'espère que tous nos amis à Vermont se portent bien et vous aussi. Bienvenue. Hello, Alexandra and all of your listeners. Thank you so much for the opportunity to answer your questions. Bonjour et merci beaucoup pour l'invitation à votre podcast. L'échange des messages Facebook et de la musique avec vous a été un plaisir pour moi. It's been a pleasure to exchange messages and music with you over the past five years or so, and it's rare that we meet some of our social media friends in person. C'est très rare d'encontrer nos amis social media en personne. Votre concert à Burlington, Vermont, en Vinces, était merveilleux. Hélas, l'église est maintenant fermée. Your concert in Burlington, Vermont in 2016 was wonderful. It's sad that the church where you gave that concert is now closed and for sale. Dennis, since 1975, you have been on the boards of over 30 organizations in roles ranging from founder to treasurer, technology consultant and executive director. Such long commitments to arts and educational organizations certainly provides you with specific insight as to the changes that have occurred in the field of arts administration in the evolving role of community organizations in the United States over the span of almost 50 years. 
What are the most significant changes in the place of art and culture organization in the United States? And how do you think they relate to the general role of arts in American public life? I hope your listeners don't mind if I continue in English. Alexander, you pose a tough question, and I'm afraid I'm going to give you a very long answer. Although I have worked as an administrator and board member, my role has been limited to small groups and special projects in local communities. My generation of outsider artists tended to be self-starters. We quickly pulled together projects or concerts or festivals just because. If it came to mind as a good idea, we did it. I'll try to explain that state of mind. Let me take you back a few decades to my early years as an independent composer fresh out of Rutgers University. In 1970, few people were playing new music outside the major cities. I was a 21-year-old living in Trenton, New Jersey. This city was a rusting industrial relic midway between New York and Philadelphia. Its proudest achievement was a sign on a bridge over the Delaware River reading, Trenton makes, the world takes. <laughs> the sign's refurbished now, but at the time its lights were out and the city was largely forgotten, despite being New Jersey's state capital. Though I'd attended Rutgers as a music major from 1966 to 1970, I wasn't actually working as a musician. I had just two or three composition students who, of course, never paid me. I, I taught at an alternative urban school as a volunteer, and I earned my income from driving a truck. And, of course, nobody was doing avant-garde music, which is what we called it at the time, or really doing any concerts outside pop and the classics. So I pulled together a group of friends to do some concerts, John Dolan songs and Stephen Foster songs and an Ockham Mass, and Larry Austin Square and Luciano Berrio's Sequenza for solo voice, along with compositions and arrangements that I created for the concerts. Few people actually showed up to listen, but that wasn't really our, our point, I guess. We wanted to make music and give ourselves an excuse to present it publicly to friends and neighbors. Almost no one was thinking about a career. In 1973, a storefront across the street from my apartment house became vacant. We gathered some more friends together, rented the storefront for a few dollars, and presented what we called a trans-medium mini-fest. It was a weekend street festival. We put on concerts and events, including sound installations and even my own rose organ made up of actual live roses with light-sensitive oscillators inside them. The city's mayor came to try out our delayed auditory feedback installation, and it was so tech-hippie, freewheeling, and mad. The Minifest was the birth of Transmedia, a loose organization that presented concerts, poetry readings, film showings, and, and four large-scale festivals, too, three Delaware Valley festivals of the avant-garde, and a Caxpixu State Festival of the Arts. The avant-garde festivals were a, a tip of the hat to Charlotte Mormon's long-running run, avant-garde festivals in New York. We'd become friends, and I performed at her festivals every year. Again, it was all volunteer work and free events. With my youthful enthusiasm, I was invited to become a trustee at the State Museum in New Jersey, where I saw disorganized bureaucracy in action, and it wasn't to my taste. My first real administrative role was as project director for Transmedia. 
It was an invented and unpaid position. We made it up so we could talk the city into giving us permission for festivals. All of the concerts and events were volunteers. Everything was free. It was the 1970s, of course. And few organizations working in newly created arts had any influence or money. We had the idealistic belief that the country, and maybe the world, was changing toward a more egalitarian society that would put the new composers right up there with the old ones. The new artists and writers and poets would be at the forefront of imagination. It was also the post-Fluxus era, when we believed art would flow from everyone to everyone, a great community of ideas and imagination. We were entirely wrong, of course. Charlotte Mormon's festivals collapsed in 1978, as did ours. We dismantled Transmedia. I moved to Vermont. With the ascent of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher came commercialization and co-opting of everything. Arts bureaucrats were born, and along with them came the formalization of arts groups and power structures. They bought in, uh, so to speak, to the idea that the arts were products to be marketed. I had gotten out just in time, at least it seemed to me. In Vermont, my first art events were presented and oh, were failures. There was a concert that included banana peels and an invisible arts festival that was promoted for a location that didn't, did not exist and for art that did not exist. No one was happy with any of it, so 350 miles from New York and under banks of snow, I was in artistic Siberia. <clears throat> well, I hid out for a few years, depressed, and working as a secretary and presenting tiny local concerts with a few friends in my town of just 330 people. Almost by accident, I founded a computer company and wrote a few books and hundreds of technical articles, staying away from the arts scene in the cities. As you can guess, I had no academic affiliations after Rutgers, meaning I had none of the networking that's demanded to gain attention today. Even my own state's Vermont Symphony Orchestra door was locked tight. Well, you know, a, a small arts ven venue is bound to happen, and one did open in Vermont's capital city, and I came out of my artistic cocoon with an hour-long solo performance with electronics and handmade instruments and costumes, and that included a, a gorgeous and heavy wool coat covered in mirrors. The mirrors reflected the light, and I could perform the electronic music with sensors. A handful of people, some friends, some interested in new music, showed up. And, and, of course, everything was still free and expenses paid out of pocket. It was also the beginning of my reemergence as a composer. I put on more concerts, invented a mythical production company called Malted Media, which actually I still have. And my composer friend David Gunn and I gathered musicians to play a series of concerts called, get this, Closing the Book on the Avant-Garde. These concerts went on all evening. The last of them included a half-hour piece I'd composed called Mantra Canon for chorus, orchestra, descant, soprano, six percussionists, and two pianos. It was a monster. And the, and the house was full with doors open and people listening from the parking lot. And yes, one more time, it was done by all volunteer musicians, and this was as recently as 1986. My own involvement in formality started right about then. I became a trustee of the Vermont Contemporary Music Ensemble, was elected to our little town's school board. I organized a church choir and taught elementary school music. 
My computer background actually got me paying work teaching courses for our community college. I was a volunteer tech consultant. I wrote some books. And we founded the Consortium of Vermont Composers, gathering together for a weekend-long festival. Because there was a surprisingly large number of composers in Vermont, more per capita than any other U.S. state at the time. So that meant more free festivals, more free performances, more just-because events. And a robust local new music scene actually came out of it. Meanwhile, though, the cities had moved on. Vermont stayed rural, and rural America was slow to adopt the commercialization and the hard-edged promotion of the arts. But the fight had begun. Our own state arts council shut down for a year in the mid-1980s over its non-responsiveness to the community. I apologize for this taking so long, but I'm trying to emphasize how different a psychology of the arts I carried around with me and still carry around with me. They are my biases in trying to explain the changes in arts and culture over the past 50 years. Well, my computer company failed. I wasn't cut out to be a grow-or-die business person. But through a series of serendipitous events, my partner and now wife Stevie Balch and I ended up living in Amsterdam in 1991. The Reagan-Thatcher madness had not yet infected the Netherlands. She as a midwife and I as a composer learned that we could be respected for our work. How about that? Well, we took that back to Vermont the next year, and we rededicated ourselves to our foolishly idealistic approaches. Another serendipitous event happened that helped define my thoughts about audiences and communities and the place of new music in artistic life. About a sense of place, too. My friend David and I were invited to create a radio show about new music. We invented a pair of names, Calvos and Damien, and we began interviewing composers and playing their music. Six months later, we were the first new music show online and soon had listeners worldwide. What a shock! It was a very young internet in 1995. Speeds were slow, yeah, but excitement was high. Even our local listeners tuned in every week. We worked with friends in Amsterdam for a Just Because five-hour concert in 1998, the first transatlantic broadcast cybercast. I was at Stime in Amsterdam, and David was at WGDR in Vermont. And then we invented the Ought One Festival of Non-Pop, 37 concerts over a single weekend. David, Stevie, and I divided up the work and pulled the whole event together on the fly. It's a story in itself, which I'd love to tell someday. It was also nearly a failure for bureaucratic reasons, and need I say more, but it ended up being spectacular. Composers and artists from four continents came to our tiny state capital with music sounding out from four church venues at once. All of it was scraped together with small donations and volunteer help. Well, we shut down Calvos and Damien in 2005. We felt we'd done the work of bringing new music to the rings of communities, the local ring, statewide ring, national, international, and others could take over the idea of new music podcasts. Plus, we were getting old, and truth be told, we were all very, very tired. For 35 years, we'd been presenting and promoting the work of others and had been ignoring our own. I'd also miss the uh, career bus, so to speak. David and I were in our 50s, and we were unknown. 
Our work wasn't getting heard, and for that matter, neither was the work of other amazing composers, even some we'd interviewed on the show. As one final attempt to bring visibility to composers of new music, I invented a personal project. I called it We Are All Mozart. Composers, I thought, were stuck on the Verez model. One composition a year, maybe, very spare and sparse. It was all too precious for me. I was a poor kid. I'll tell you about being a poor kid at some point. But uh, I wanted to challenge that model by writing a composition every day. Not just one invented by myself, for myself, but one commissioned and paid for. As you might guess, I couldn't get one for every day, but I did. I did secure and complete 100 commissions in 2007. I promoted the idea that daily composition and completion was good for the composer community and good for its audiences and good for its potential audiences. It was work to accept and fulfill someone else's expectations day after day. It was something Mozart did. I think it was likely my final contribution to the artistic community. The idea spread slowly, but it did spread. And as you know, today the idea of creating new work every day is pretty much a commonplace. We do it. We are all Mozart, and Verez is finally dead. As a true homo universalis, you care about promoting the notion of culture generale the type of breadth of education and curiosity that is frequently neglected and sometimes even mocked in our time of anti-intellectualism and narrow specialization. You have started a series of self-help desperation guides, in quotes, aimed at non-professional musicians. Two have already been published, one on classical music and one on music technology. Do you ultimately hope to accomplish something in particular with the series, and what are some of the upcoming topics that you plan to popularize, or as we say in French, vulgariser? Alexandra, thank you for that insightful question. Anti-intellectualism makes me very sad, but so does what I think of as pseudo-clerical intellectualism. I was a poor kid. I wasn't dirt poor, but at the bottom fringe of the lower middle class. Learning and discovery were incredibly important to me at a kind of intuitive level. I read the vocabulary tests in Reader's Digest. Actually, I read any book that was around, even if it was a mail-order catalog. We moved often to find cheaper and cheaper places to live, so I had no lasting friends and few lasting possessions. We had no television for most of my youth and no music until... I was a young teenager, actually. So every discovery from The Twilight Zone to Le Sacre de Pantin was an expansion of my tiny, poor world. And in my mind, I am still always that poor kid looking for something new. I don't think you ever, in your mind, quite escape poverty. Unfortunately, I also learned that experts seem to want to keep the unwashed, like me, out of their pristine specialties. I was the first in our extended family to attend college. But my compositions were pushed aside by the music department chair. That's a depressing story in itself that I should tell someday. What also bothered me was the textbook reality that the terms and technical aspects of what were basically very simple musical behaviors were cloaked in a grim, religious-like mystery. 
When I began to learn about computers, I discovered the same priesthood attitude. Computer guides were rarely written in clear, plain language. It made no sense. How could smart people be so dull? As a youngster, I'd learned a lot from reading interesting writers, how the rhythms and vocabulary of, of really compelling writing could command attention and refresh the reader's memory as it went along. I'd also taught myself a lot about clear expression by writing a weekly book review column for the local newspaper. <laughs> I mailed in the reviews so they wouldn't know that I was just a 15-year-old kid. <laughs> Later, some of my personal articles about computers that I sent to friends were picked up by computer magazines. I wrote more and more and eventually had two anti-priesthood computer books published, one was the custom TRS-80, about that venerable computer, and the other, Learning the 6809, about a microprocessor. They took fresh, uh, even bourgeois, I guess, approaches to teaching and writing about computers. Then I wanted to defrock the musical priesthood that I long resented. I wrote, what? I don't get classical music, a self-help desperation guide. The idea wasn't to strip away the magic, but rather to empower readers to become comfortable with the amazing witches and wizards of music. They could scrape the barnacles off the terminology and be encouraged to hear Western classical music as a thrilling experience, a challenging experience. The book was actually written for my music history students, who had come into school with little knowledge of and even less patience with classical music. What? I don't get classical music, was actually what one of the students said during an early class. That gave me the motivation to write the book. I gave it to my students a chapter at a time, absorbing their criticism. With that in mind, I went on to write another defrocking book, this one about technology and music, that was published only a few weeks ago. It's a little more exhaustive because technology is both overwhelming and deeply embedded in almost everything we do as musicians. But still, my goal was to make it both entertaining and solid, and as you said, it's the second in the What series, and gave me ideas to keep going. I have several books to finish that might transform themselves into more whatness, though they might be a little more specialized. I'm thinking about the non-pop revolution, about how new music rose from the ashes of modernism to enthuse audiences today. It would be a book gleaning the best insights from our 350 or more composer guests on the Calvos and Damien show. There's also the question of audiences that I want to take up in Beyond Audience Zero an explanation on how music and audiences interact. Audience zero is the composer, and it goes out from there. Researched and partly written is Plasm in the Chamber Opera, a, a short history of post-fluxus music starting with my first opera, Plasm Over Ocean. A book on graphical music notation is almost finished, with a marvelously disheveled title called Soiled Amplitudes, the Musical Composition and Notational Aesthetics of a Rural Composer. <laughs> maybe I won't finish that. Or, or maybe I will. Maybe I'll even finish my autobiography. Right now it has the title The Spoons We Use and pages of random anecdotes and things about a sense of place. At this point, with I don't get music technology just finished, I'm tired and do need some motivation to popularize something or other. 
On page 91 of your book, What? I Don't Get Classical Music, A Self-Help Desperation Guide, you write, quote, You may occasionally hear classical music and think that you have heard it before. It references what you already know, what is already part of your culture, end quote. Our common culture of classical music, greatly expanded by all the mutual influences from the 1889 World Fair in Paris, provides us with a common denominator of oral references, musical science, even symbolism, subsequently enhanced with the commercial movie music industry. What do you consider a strictly American contribution to the world of classical music and with everyone and everything being so interconnected, can anything be considered a strictly isolated contribution of one culture to the common whole? Well, nothing is isolated, is it? Everything's been connected for hundreds of millennia, from the cupule sculptures of Asia right to the design of implantable microchips. I don't mean to dismiss the question. But the moment I think, ah, oh, that's strictly American, the thought gets clouded and turns up wrong. But if you're talking about uh, manifestations as opposed to history, then three realms come to mind, jazz, rock, and minimalism. Once I say those out loud, though, I immediately think of their relationships, which are born out of each other and how they trace their rhythms, harmony, forms, and tunings along three different lineages and all the way back to those Asian cupules. Since you point to it, the cross-cultural nature of the French Exposition of 1889 is a recognition of connectedness, of modern times with machines, of pavilions from across the world, still exotic rather than integrated, though, uh, and along with technologies. If your question is about the beginnings of recording the exposition, such as Edison's phonograph, then we begin a different narrative for music's direction and one I've obsessively explored. I'm really trying to answer that question. But the postmodernist one from column A and two from column B approach has also subverted the historical narrative we've been so fond of in the West. We're short on history anyway, especially here in the U.S. We rewrite our own as needed to meet what has remained pretty much white and patriarchal. But I'm a bad candidate to answer this question objectively. I mentioned earlier that I didn't have any music as a kid. I, I really didn't. We got a radio when I was a young teenager, and I listened to pop music for perhaps a year then discovered by accident the FM dial and classical music. The first piece I'd ever heard was Siegfried's Funeral March. And I was hooked, really, really because of Siegfried's Funeral March, full of teenage angst it was. I was given a record player and bought collections of classical music and then jazz, experimental jazz like Coltrane and Coleman and Braxton. To me, Stravinsky's Sacre and Coltrane's Ascension were and are a pair. Similarly, Beethoven was as alien as Bach, as Mozart, as Sibelius. It was all new to me. I loved all of it. So my late entry into non-pop meant I had no tools for listening, and also no tools for judgment, and no biases that come from a childhood taking piano lessons or sax lessons or listening to endless hours of bubblegum music. 
Even after falling in love with the music as a poor kid, I never went to classical concerts. I just couldn't afford to. So, you see, my teen years were molded by recordings. By that year, 1965 actually, everything was already connected by recordings, in obvious ways. Beyond the very shiny surface of differences, even the American-seeming jazz, rock, and minimalism are all part of a global musical sonic quilt. I know that sounds, I don't know, cheap, but the truth is, the references in classical music are truly what we already know, perhaps some more so than others, but we still know them. And I, I, I do apologize if that sounds evasive. I don't think I'm really capable of answering that very deeply. Dennis, you have popularized the term non-pop. What do you wish to describe specifically with the term? And why did you decide to promote it over more well-known anglophone expressions, such as contemporary classical music or art music? Ah, non-pop, yes. That's a term that came out of our Calvos and Damien radio show. First, let me try to get rid of those two examples you give. Art music easily applies to non-classical forms such as electroacoustic, jazz, and film scores, and plenty of others. To use it to describe only one small area of musical art demeans the others, I think. As for contemporary classical music, I don't find much in electronic music, computer orchestras, interactive sound genres, performance art, etc., that show a classical music link. Likewise, Concert music applies to every genre performed in front of audiences. Uh, terms new music and avant-garde music are historical periods now. So is experimental music. So what are we left with? We can go back to the awful baggage-laden term classical music or look, at, look, for, look for something fresher that drops all the baggage. The term classical music, contemporary or not, has the ability to alienate potential listeners as does perhaps this train. I love, I love that kind of interruption. It's just perfect for anyone who's a sonic artist. Anyway, that's why David Gunn and I came up with non-pop for our radio show. It worked as a very general term to indicate a depth of sensation, an attention to craft, and experiment with ideas, as well as suggesting perhaps length, audience, and so forth. There's no line. There's no line between pop and non-pop. It doesn't even exist on a line. It's more of a, a disc. On one edge is the 100% pop, bubblegummy music or Beethoven contradances or polka bands with nothing really but entertainment in mind. That's not a a judgment about them, just a, an observation about what they're for. On the, the other edge of this circle, this disc, is the 100% non-pop. Beethoven's Grosse Fuga, or Menges's Epitaph, or Xenakis's Pitopacta. Those give you a sense of that pure-ish non-pop. As you move along the edge of the disc or across the face of it, you pick up Mozart symphonies, the levels of jazz, throat singing, improvised music, opera calls to prayer, uh, rigorous, experimental, traditional, gamelan, Catholic ritual, easy listening, electronic, 
television music, advertising jingles, cover songs, sound installations, Thai funeral music, etc., etc. By using the terms pop and non-pop, I can identify roughly where on the disc the music lives. Some people accuse it of being negative, of course. It's an opposite, not a negative. There's nothing negative about nonfiction, nothing negative about non-discrimination, about uh, non-reflective. They're mere descriptives. They offer a grounding where a more satisfactory term doesn't exist. By modifying non-pop, say, with contemporary American, 19th century East Asian, or Andean flute, I can offer an invitation to question the term and then answer the question without the moldy baggage of terms like classical music and art music. You know, frankly, I don't know if the struggle exists in other languages, but U.S. English does engage a lot of self-reflection and self-criticism. In hope that it be acceptable to you to quote a private conversation, you have mentioned that the new music field has grown more competitive and less collegially supportive over the years. How does this shift manifest itself in a USA context? And what do you consider the primary causes driving this shift? If possible, do cite some examples drawn from your experience as arts administrator of structural changes that reflect this shift in attitude over time. I have made some enemies with these comments on social media. In my long, long answer earlier, I talked about the difference between working then and now. Except for a few ambitious performers, I don't think I'd ever heard my friends talk about careers. From small concerts to huge festivals, people seem to be doing it for the art. Like me, most had day jobs of one kind or another, some in music, some not. Others subsisted on the more generous grants and private support at the time. Some have made careers in the arts since we worked together. Fernanda D'Agostino is a sculptor. Joanne Giordano is a fabric artist. Trevor Bryant is a model maker. Ken Kaplowitz and Jan Kunitz are both photographers. Only John Truby, David Gunn, and I have remained musicians from that group. And we still all have day jobs in our supposed, our supposed retirement years. Maybe people find that pitiful. I don't know. I've managed to write nearly 1,200 compositions and have more than 500 of them performed while having day jobs. I do know that the more career-oriented artists get angry when we write for free or for a small honorarium. By working for free, you devalue our art, they accuse. And they accuse it pretty strongly. Well, I'm not making a commodity. I simply reject the implicit valuation applied to art. I find it interesting and helpful, but never a requirement. Support me, yes, but don't put a bounty on my music. I mentioned the We Are All Mozart project and the 100 commissions I gathered in 2007. That might be an accusation that I'm hypocritical. Well, I was trying to do something there. Aside from the pressure to produce a piece every couple of days and encouraging other composers to do that, I had another goal in the project. It was to expose the silly nature of commissioning, all that begging around and clumping together commissioning consortia. It seemed just icky to me. 
So for We Are All Mozart, I sold the music. Yeah, here we go. I sold the music at $1 per measure part with a minimum of $50. Solo piece of 80 measures, $80. String quartet of 100 measures, $400. Orchestral piece of 200 measures, $6,000. It was ridiculous and fun and kept a small income arriving that year. And I hope it revealed something about music and money. You ask about structural changes. There has been a dramatic increase in bureaucracy in the U.S. Once an artist or musician could apply to the National Endowment for funding or request a generous donation from a person or business. New levels of bureaucracy have been added as well as new social requirements in reporting, much of it in response to the reactionary makeup of Congress. I almost never apply for public funds because I feel my art should speak for itself and people will come to me if they want a piece of music. And I can write disturbing or political pieces without bureaucratic finger-wagging. But if I wanted public funds, the money would now filter from the National Endowment to the New England Foundation to the Vermont Arts Council to a conservative granting panel. Plus, I'd need to justify the art in more than its own terms as a social activity. It's given rise to the industries of application agents and grant workshops. Everybody wants a piece of the pie, and in order to justify their tenuous political existence, the arts bureaucracies have to fit each award into terms of social importance. I find the entire psychology of it disturbing. Naturally, I am not young. I wasn't brought up through this. Both artistic careerism and self-justification feel wrong to me, but are probably natural to the 40-somethings now in charge of the whole mechanism. The chaos and fervor of the 1960s and 70s have given way to a caution and an order. I don't like it, but uh, I'm dead soon enough. You mentor emerging composers, both as adjunct professor and as private instructor. How do pedagogies, aims, and approaches differ in both contexts? Do you feel different types of restrictions with each type of student? Do students seek different types of help if they work towards a degree? Do you find differences in attitude, level of preparation, and expectations? What ethical issues do you try to address with your students, and do those differ depending on the teaching context? Oh, Alexandra, your questions certainly aren't easy. I hope you don't mind if I break these down a little bit. My pedagogy does differ depending on the composer's background. When I taught composition to elementary school students, I was always exploring with them, having fun and creative moments. Young children are simply not inhibited by expectations, so certainly I learned as much as they did. And it was, it was incredible fun. Everybody learned. Everybody, even to this day, years later, remembers that six years. But I don't think that's your question. So, okay, for composers with experience, I treat the sessions like a conversation where I'm the person full of questions. Why this idea? Where is it going? Do you know this music that deals in similar issues? Tell me about your musical goals, your personal goals, audience goals. What are your expectations in the uh, real air? 
I try not to challenge them unless it's invited. I offer possibilities out of stuck places. Sometimes the music makes evident that they haven't considered something. I'll mention that. My aim is a kind of, I don't know, negative one. That is, never to mold them in my image of a composer or as a composer. One of my accomplished students, Christina Wolf, wrote me a testimonial last year. Your listeners need to be familiar with her extraordinary music. She ended the testimonial by writing, While I appreciate Dennis's work, I would not say that he and I share an aesthetic. Uh, I appreciate this difference, and he does not need to believe in what you do in order to help you do it better. In fact, we have had strong disagreements from time to time, and he will tell me when he thinks I am being lazy or not doing my best work. I cannot recommend him highly enough. Well, of course, I love that. <laughs> well, my undergraduate students aren't that different in their hopes, but are very different in their experience. Some have woefully limited backgrounds in music, literature, art, history, and science. They know what they've done for themselves and what they've learned in, in theory courses. Some have superior abilities to respond to an assignment, but turn in effectively empty rule-driven results. That's not untypical, I don't suppose, of many students. Others are, are looking for the next possibility and hoping I'll hand it to them. Unlike composers from my own youth, I'm finding these students often want answers first and struggle with reaching out to other music. I have some students who routinely refuse to listen to any of the links I assign them. It's a kind of, I know everything, but you need to give me more without me having to do any work. Well, it's tough. Undergraduates are tough that way. And I should tell you that only a few of my students have been typical classical non-pop composers. Others were doing hip-hop, electronia, DJing, singer-songwriting, metal, traditional rock, vocal music, drumming, and so on. As you can guess, I don't compose in any of those genres particularly, though I listen to them and study them. I'm a history guy. As I've said in answer to an earlier question, I find relationships everywhere. So for singer-songwriters, I make sure they're aware of the sources of their words, the poetry, and even the ghosts in the etymology, something that poet John Chiardi used to write about. Vocal music composers get suggestions to listen to extended voice performers. I suggest that the hip-hop folks go out in the woods and record long stretches of near silence to work within sonic landscapes with no beats whatsoever. Metal folks would get a whole week of Marisbo, and so on. But there are two pieces of advice I give every student. The first is to answer the question, where do I get my notes? Every note. No gut-level response, but a clear explanation of every choice. Like a CNN interview answering in 10 seconds, where do I get my notes? The other piece of advice is to say yes. If someone wants a film score, say yes. If someone wants a song, say yes. A few minutes of background music, yes. Something for 76 trombones, yes. Music for solo ocarina, yes. Always say yes. 
Sometime later, you can begin to say no or give me money or something. But as a young composer, the answer must always be yes. And you can probably grasp the relationship here to my We Are All Mozart. Irrespective of my own opinion of the application of monetary value to artistic creations, I, I, I do emphasize intellectual property issues to join licensing agencies to register their works, make sure they get permissions and releases, and learn how to fashion uh, a contract from a boilerplate. I talk about the significance of royalties to their future. My friend Gottfried Willem Ross at Logos in Belgium approves of government support but opposes royalties. I explain the arguments on both sides of being paid more than once for work that you only did once. Ethical issues are harder to identify, and I don't have an overall ethics manual for young composers. I take them as they come up. Ethical questions, including social issues, come up in choice of texts, performances, audiences, issues of money and contracts where you allow your music to be used, what you expect performers to do. Will you cause them stress, pain, and ask for extreme vocal ranges? What choices are legitimate? I tell stories from my own experience, such as the time a singer refused to do a work planned for one of my concerts because it called up the devil in a text from Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. I cite read uh, David Gunn's music instead. Can you compose music to a sacred text if you don't believe in it? I do that regularly and also conducted a church choir. What are the ethics of borrowing material, even if it's in the public domain? How do you, as a composer of a certain gender and ethnicity, respond artistically to assaults on others outside your culture? Do you? Or do you just be quiet? Do you accept questions of authenticity, responsibility for your behavior on the page, composition with appropriated materials? That's the hardest one because it's so unclear what drives artistic change and development. That is, what isn't appropriated. In the first six episodes of my podcast, I address ethical and moral issues regarding technological innovations in music. As someone who has been on the forefront of implementations of technological innovations in music, what do you Dear Dennis Bathory Kids, consider the most serious ethical issue facing new music specialists and specifically composers today. Appropriation, both cultural and personal, is the most serious issue to me. Technological innovations from the early days of recording up to the present have made it possible to hear, learn, grab, use, and remake work from cultures that the composer isn't part of. And sure, Mozart had his Turkish bravo opera and Puccini had his Chochosan. But recording and universal access make possible using and reusing music with absolutely no acknowledgement of, much less appreciation of, the creator or the cultural source. Increasingly easy access to recordings has encouraged a distasteful kind of culture, a culture actually of disacknowledgement. And for me, the acknowledgement of the creator is not as important as acknowledging the cultural source. Cultural sources get distanced and their signs and their symbols demeaned through remixing, mashups, and a 
devastating lack of historical knowledge and even empathy on the part of composers. Artists lay claim to being at the forefront of thinking and cultural awareness, all the while listening past the sound of deeply felt cultural signs that were ripped out of their cultural sources. It is shocking to me that cultural appropriation seems to be a new discussion again. Appropriation of black artists has been big exploitive business for generations. But discussion of reparations in the U.S. rarely includes payments and source searches. We mentioned the Orientalism of Debussy or Mozart or Gilbert and Sullivan as kind of past tense cultural appropriation, even though cultural sources aren't just about distant societies. It happens with the disempowered black artists, with native artists in Canada, and with poor artists as it did with Jesus' Love Never Failed Me Yet, ostensibly by Gavin Bryars, or rather, not by Bryars, but truly by the uncredited, unnamed homeless man. It's a clear example. Justifications for this appropriation have been repeated endlessly, but none ring true to me. Bryars, quote, owns the music. It's his copyright on it. Neither the homeless man nor a charity in that man's name are allowed to own this music. Nowhere is the homeless man credited as the actual lead singer, except in the program notes. I want to scream, say his name, as they do to those who have been killed by police in the U.S. It's a lie of appropriation. The only truth to my mind would be if every penny of profit and royalties from this recording went to homeless shelters in and around the area. I recently read and reread, actually, a, an article from The Guardian from two years ago. And this paragraph hit me. Breyers recognized that he had to treat the material with respect, beginning with an attempt, an attempt to discover the provenance of the singer and the music. Yet no trace of the hymn nor of the man who sang it ever turned up. It may be taken from a song sheet prepared for long, some long-forgotten mission hall, or maybe a hymn composed or improvised by the old man himself. Briars' publishers scoured the archives in hope of finding a published text, but to no avail. This changes the stakes for what might have seemed a casual appropriation of found material is actually more like a collaboration between two composers who never met. End quote. And I seethe with anger. No, it is not a collaboration. It is exploitation. It is unethical artistic behavior on display. So I guess you know uh, now that I feel cultural appropriation is the most serious ethical issue facing us today as musicians. Um, as a side note, I owe much of my growth in this area to my friend uh, John Silpiaminant, and his expertise in sophisticated non-Western musical culture. Thanks, John. To finish on a more personal note, how would you describe your music to someone who has not heard it, but who wishes to immerse him or herself in your art? Should one try to listen to anything in particular? And what do you hope that a listener would take away from an encounter with your art? Cherchez les tous, écoutez les tous, listen to everything. Among the most interesting 
of my works are Mantra Cannon, the monster piece I mentioned earlier, conducted in a later and better version by Thomas L. Reed, as well as Softening Cries for Orchestra, also conducted by Dr. Reed. Politics can get old quickly, but there's the oratorio Goat Songs of the Regime of Monsters that uses the sickening quotes from Trump and his administration. I organized and conducted the oratorio late last year. I have two lovely quarter-tone pieces, Upon Further Reflection for Violin, Sax, and Piano, played by the Meta Music Trio, and Tiel for Solo Violin, performed by Dr. Reed. An intense political song is Fugue States, with a commanding text by Jane Boxall, with Jane, Laurel, Ann Maurer, and Emily Searles performing. An open score piece uh, was recently published in the journal IMOS, that's DEX, and it's for playing cards, and it's been played a few times. Another open score is The Ice Winds, based on the Icelandic national anthem, premiered by duo Harpwerk. A dramatic composition for two pipe organs is Wonder and Astonishment, recorded by the late Josh Pershbacher. Um, for those who love choral pieces, I have an Ave Verum Corpus, sung by the Vermont Choral Union. So many different pieces. It's, it's my love to be writing music, always. Evil Pony for Sex Quartet. Air for Harp and Percussion. Um, there's my second opera, Hergé Bet, and my first opera, Plasm Over Ocean the two separated by more than 30 years. Um, my Missa da Camera from 1978 and my Requiem for Hard Times for 20, from uh, 2017. And of course, there are the 100 pieces from the We Are All Mozart project. I publish all my scores and make them available for free download and post-performances as soon as I can. I still believe in the idea of volunteer offerings so you can get those scores uh, without cost. I don't know what I hope people will take from the music other than an experience they hadn't had before. And on this note, we are going to finish our conversation. Thank you very much, uh, dear Dennis, for your time. And thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in to another interview episode of Topical Reflections on Music. Well, thank you so much, Alexandra, for inviting me and for your illuminating questions. I hope the answers were interesting, if nothing else. And I hope your listeners will come back again after so much of me. <laughs> merci pour votre invitation et merci à tous vos auditeurs. C'était une excellente expérience. Au revoir. Good night. Thanks again. I hope you have a wonderful day and see you next time. Bye-bye.